come with us. into the wild wood. And find the magic within. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, good people around the world. This is Into the Wildwood, so come and join us in the Wildwood. There we go. <laughs> Welcome Yay. back. All right, so today uh, I'm Lee Johnson, also known as Red Oak, and my co-host over there. Over, over there. there. Somewhere around there. There you go. <laughs> is Rev Kai. <laughs> well, really, you can go either direction and eventually get to me around Eventually, the world. yeah. Eventually. We can even go up or down. No, well, maybe not up or down. East or west. Eh, kind of. Kind hmm. of. <laughs> yeah. Could, actually. Over the North Pole. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. It's not quite straight down, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. When, when we hit the North Pole or the South Pole, it'll rebound and... It'll turn. ...send us in the right direction, yeah. All right. Enough shit talk. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... As you would have noticed by now, obviously, this is a premiere show. Um, I do have load shedding right smack bang in the middle this week. And so we are pre-recording our, what do we call it again? Follow, follow the White Rabbit. Follow the White Rabbit show. So to introduce you to Follow the White Rabbit show, what we are going to do is Kai has a bunch of cards with questions on. And they are going to pick a random topic. And then I am going to be stumped and sit in silence. No, no. I will do my best. There we go. Okay. All right. Oh, and all the usual stuff as well. Go check out our website, intothewildwood.com with a Y. And have a look at the links in the description and the link tree. You should find our uh, Wildwood Temple Discord server. You can join us on the chat there. You can continue the discussions that we have here. All right. So, shall we go for it? All right. Here we go. This one. Da -da -da. This one says discussion topics birth. Birth. Just birth. Birth. That's all. <laughs> Just birth. Uh... <laughs> birth. Okay. So, I, I will say that I'm sure this is in the context of discussing life passages. Um, so, you know, we had marriage and birth and death and all of the individual life passages as um, discussion topics. Okay. All right. Yeah, because we did so discuss slight, this previously. Slight context. Uh, rites of passage. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was actually reading some stuff earlier today. Um, it was about the... Um, for those people who have uh, female organs, uh, genitals and such. Um, some very interesting stuff. Um, well, I guess it's the process before birth. 
um, but with the um, sperm cells swimming towards the the egg, the egg actually apparently has a scent, and the sperm cells actually smell. Um, and the scent yeah, that's how they describe it. Yeah. I mean, it's all it's all happening in the context not of air; it's all in liquid. I don't know because this thing said that apparently the scent that the egg produces is smells a lot like lily of the valley. Lily, you are lily of the valley. I think it was lily of the valley. Hmm. Um, so who knows? <laughs> well, I mean, inside a womb is not filled with air, because that would be mm. um, that would immediately result in um, some very serious infections, and definitely mm. not a viable egg or viable sperm or any of that sort of stuff. Um, but I mean, scent travels through a variety of mediums. Uh, as humans, we think of it as in the air, but I mean, we also have the phrase like uh, sharks can smell blood in the water, mm. right? And mm. that's the idea of scent traveling through water. Um, and I mean, really, it's the same thing. It's particularly loose, volatile chemical compounds um, that are easy to attach to various uh, receptors in our nose and mouth. And they get loose and they float around in whatever medium. Hmm. Um, so there's uh, the head of sperm has uh, various um, sensory mechanisms that help it know what environments it is in and whether or not to swim faster or slower, um, that sort of thing. But yeah, there is a, a chemical trace um, that the egg uh, puts out in the womb to identify where it is in the womb. And once sperm can get close enough, then they can swim towards it uh, because they can smell it. But that's interesting that it smells like lily of the valley to us because lily of the valley is deadly. Mm. Yeah. I think the other interesting thing was from a more spiritual point of view, and this is a question a lot of people ask, is when, at what point does the soul enter? Um, because one, of the, one of the suggestions, and this was a suggestion I was reading, is that um, as the, the sperm cells all attach to the wall of the, the egg, there's only one cell that is allowed in. And right. The, the spirit... Well, if everything works right. Yeah, yeah. usually, usually. <laughs> Um, the soul or the spirit of the, um, the person who is going to become that person, that that soul picks the particular sperm cell that is going to be the one that gets through. Hmm. So the soul enters at that point. I mean, other traditions will say it enters um, during the, the fetal uh, progression. Some, some actually say it, it enters like seven days afterwards, after the birth. Um, mm -hmm. So, a lot of varying different opinions on that, I think. Um, very interesting topic. I've, I've looked into that for a long time, and I really do believe, especially in modern um, parlance, I guess, or conversation, to say that the soul enters the body before the body is separate from mm. the person giving birth. Um, I think is just an entire minefield of 
uh, valuing one soul over another. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't think we can do that. I think, um, and part of my my own personal worldview is, of course, informed by the worldview of ancient astrologers, which um, you are your own entity, and, and therefore an individual piece of the soul, because the idea of the soul is is the great union of the divine, all souls all together, that is the divine, mm. and. The little bit of that that comes and becomes individuals that is separated with the first breath of life mm. because that's the moment we say you're an individual and now your soul has been divided off um, into its own little container and will have its own little journey um so before that when uh the mother is you know pregnant and there's obviously a living being in there kicking around and moving and 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 doing all of those things in the late stages of pregnancy um you know yes that body is animated but the souls that occupy both the the mother and the fetus are not yet separated they are still together that doesn't mean they're one person because we have this really weird idea that the soul in an individual is somehow more soul-y than the soul in collections of things like um, when we say things like talking to the bees we don't go out and talk to a singular bee right mm. We talk to the hive. We talk to the soul of the bees that are living in that hive together. That doesn't mean we're telling all bees everywhere that have ever been, right? But we're still communicating through the language of the divine, one soul to another. Mm. And even there, I said one. Yeah. My soul bit to their soul bits. And because... Um, we're all sharing the same soul stuff, whatever that is. Um, it clumps together, you know? And so um, I think when there is clearly a living being inside another clearly living being, yes, they both have souls, but at that time they are not separated. They are still close enough to... Um, share what happens in divine union in the you know soul stuff when it gets together becomes a bigger clump of soul stuff it merges it it it, it unions because that's what divinity and, and the soul does and there's also you know the the connection that happens i mean you know metaphysically speaking um, what, three generations, is it? Because when a fetus is formed, the material for the production of the next generation is already there, right? Whether that's egg cells as the fetus is formed, or if later in the pregnancy, hormones act upon the body and uh, reshape it into 
um, having uh, male sex characteristics and therefore turn those into sperm cells. They're the same thing when they start. And so that information is encoded inside the egg that lives inside that person that produced, that carried that fetus, which means that when they were little, that information was encoded inside of those eggs, inside of that person. Mm. So it really, it's kind of, I think it's weird to think about it in those separating terms. Because when we start looking at the science of it and everything, it's not one, one, one in the process of producing um, or, or regenerating our physical forms to continue the experience of, of our species. You know, mm. it, it's very interwoven through multiple generations and we're not nearly as separate as we think we are. And so, especially when we start thinking about, well, when does the soul arrive? <laughs> I kinda, Three generations ago? <laughs> yeah, but I, I kind of do like the idea of it um, arriving at that first breath. Because uh, we talk about prana, we talk about ruach. Mm -hmm. um, and the ruach is often considered to be situated in the chest. Um, so that first breath bringing the soul in um, and then yeah, uh, becoming the Ruach and then extending into the other parts of the soul. Um, it's just that first breath that really does make me feel like, personally, that you know, that's when the soul actually enters. I really think that is the moment of individuation. Mm. Um, whether we, we also say that's when the soul enters, if that's how we understand the soul, or if we say that's when the spirit enters, because sometimes there is a conceptual division between soul and spirit. Um, and spirit we is very much connected to the idea of breath. Inspiration is still, um, you know, the term we use for breathing in. Mm. Expiration. Uh, these all have to do with spirit because it is the movement of spirit, which is air, breath, life. If we stop breathing, we die. Mm. Um, you know, or if, if tragically we are not breathing when we are born, we never lived. Right? That That's a common parlance and understanding uh, of the way we think about life and death, um, even though there are technically... Um, some more details to that on the medical side about brains and that sort of thing. But you, you can't live without breathing for a very short period of time, not a day. Mm. You know, it's much, much shorter than that. Much, much shorter than that. So conceptually, that individuation moment, and I think astrology bears out that that's an accurate thing. Otherwise, astrology wouldn't work. Um, because that's the thing we're always going for in astrology to time a chart is the inspiration. Um, in, in humans, for natal charts, we say that's the breath of life. But for questions, we say that's the moment when the question was truly inspired in you. And especially in like older horary traditions, um, which was more common than natal astrology. Not mm. everybody tracks birth times. It didn't back in the day. Mm. But in horary traditions, if you have a problem, first you try to solve it the mundane ways. 
right? And you run out of solutions. Then you pray about it. You enter holy communion with the gods, however that works for you. And, and this isn't always in a Christian context. We're talking about with the ancient astrologers. Then from that holy union with the gods time, the prayer time, comes inspiration for the right question, the right thing to ask, the, the moment when you go, ding, and that's when you cast a chart for a horror thing because the question has been born. The question has breathed life yeah. and now it is its own thing and can't be answered. Um, so, you know, this idea that this is the moment and I've always kind of seen it as the uniting of spirit and matter because to breathe in is to take in the matter outside of us and begin the cascading chemical process of life right that is interacting outside of our mother we we live inside of our mother but it's very different mm. you know our mother is breathing for us our mother is doing all of the filtering with liver and kidneys for us our mother is feeding us all of the nutrients and digesting them beforehand you know so we're not we're not living on our own at that time as a fetus, but our mother is not, um, not living either. There's a mechanical reduction that happens at that time. And during the time of having, of growing a body for a soul to inhabit, you know, it, it takes a while. It's a process. Mm. And I think that, um, there are arguments to be made that um, the soul that is um, in a fetus is part of the mother's soul. Mm. And uh, there are some traditions uh, that after the baby is born, the first thing the other biological parent does is breathe in their mouth. Because then the soul is is balanced and brought into wholeness i mean there's also like you know the basic thing that babies are often born with mucus and stuff in their mouth because suddenly they have to go from water world to air world <laughs> and you know um there's always suctioning stuff out and getting stuff out of the mouth and stuff so the baby can breathe like that's just a practical thing of birth but there was also this process that you know the other parent who didn't give birth would do that part would remove the 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 mucus and the the plugs from the mouth and that sort of thing and make sure the baby was breathing breathe into their mouth and then there would be that cry of life so you know i've always thought that was a a wonderful way to see physically the interaction of divine souls working through the physical to produce an entirely new physical body for the divine soul of these two experiences to merge and have a third experience. I think the, that idea of an individuation with the first breath, um, I, I was actually writing uh, today about the union with the divine, which I keep saying, and I realized that 
lot of people might not actually understand what I mean. Because um, when we think of union with the divine, it's usually in the context of you have to move closer to God, which speaks of one body or individual moving closer to another body or individual. Um, but when I speak about the divine, it's everything and nothing. And <laughs> therefore, it is the screen that we're recording this on, the microphone, the desk, everything. Um, it's the nature, it's the trees, it's the birds, it's the plants, it's the buildings, etc., etc., etc. So to try and put it in a nutshell, everything is that divinity and we already are it. So that point of birth when you take the first breath, in terms of being individuation, it's almost like um, that's the point where you, um, you're not even aware at that point, but it's that separation. And then as you grow up, you become more and more and more separated until you become aware of the divinity, which is you. Um, mm -hmm. So that individuation, I like that word, um, I think kind of speaks to that as well. But I think that's why there's a lot of imagery and language in a lot of um, spiritual practices that include things like returning to the womb of the mother. Mm. And, uh, you know, we talk about womb and tomb and, and all of that sort of stuff that um, that's where the union is on the other side, mm. you know, and it's where we go to, but it's where we come from. So that doorway, that's the doorway birth and death, they're just going different ways through the tunnel, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so we want that that union, that experience of hieros gamos, that divineness, without going through the tunnel to death, mm -hmm. right? Or um, so we language it in terms of being reborn. Um, initiation ceremonies very frequently have a period of time where you go into a dark space alone. Sometimes it's tight. Sometimes the woman imagery is really up front. Sometimes it's really coded, you know, and then we are reborn into this new life from having this divine experience at that time, mm. at that time of isolation, at that time of return. And I've always thought that kind of language in turn informs because that's our metaphysical understanding of what is happening and clearly it works you know thousands and thousands of years of humans doing these kinds of rituals to experience union with the divine so why would we think that when what we're modeling is actually happening human growing another human inside why would we think those two are separate if we are returning to the divine mother through this process, if we are experiencing this analog, this um, metaphysical kenning, and it works like this, and we get union in that process, right? We go through that rebirth experience, and we we achieve hieroscamos in that um, magical womb. Why would we turn around and think that the the two entities in this process we are modeling it off of would be separate? That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, but also with the separation of, uh, I mean, we said this a lot, um, you know, in the Christian worldview, 
it's all oh, even the ceremonial magic worldview it's all about uh, moving towards the divine but separating mm -hmm. yourself from the material and the physical world but if, if well we, yeah you know if we consider the divine to be everything it is also the material and physical world so you're actually trying to run away from something in order to get to it and it just yeah. doesn't make sense um that's yeah that's why in paganism we say things like the false dichotomy of spirit and matter because the Christian worldview has a dichotomy between spirit and matter. Spirit is over here, it has been removed from matter, and we are stuck here in matter, and we got to get out of matter and get to spirit. And yet the pagan worldview is that spirit and matter are not really separate things. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes people say they're entwined, or that spirit resides within matter, and it is indwelling. I, I've heard that for the explanation of eminence versus transcendence. But I really think at the heart of it, there's no division. Spirit expresses itself in the, the fractal multiplicity of material manifestation. That is not an unspiritual thing. It is spirit doing its thing. Spirit acting upon the material world because the material world is the spiritual world we we classify them differently because our manifestation gives us the option for that experience but um it is that manifestation that allows division that's like kind of the point right division and replication and therefore diversity because every time nature makes a copy it's not a perfect copy something changes and that's the point changes the point is not perfect replicable copies that do not change the point is not sameness the point is always multiplicity because that is what spirit does spirit grows and and, and adapts and and fractalizes and i think to separate the two like the actions of spirit the the vibrations of spirit don't get to be spirit anymore that's where we draw the line i think that's also weird <laughs> mm. like that doesn't make sense in my mind because this is all one flowing continuum of pattern of breathing of life going on life needs patterns mm. life needs in and out breathing life needs in and out food uh, life needs you know these repeated patterns of things to happen it's always a cycle the life cycle in, in a lot of different ways and that's not some fluke that is separate from this pure eternal unchanging spirit idea spirit is itself the motion for change mm. and the motion therefore for growth and adaptation yeah. yeah I mean we do use I mean conversation we do use things say things like um the astral and the mundane or the profane world. Um, so in conversation we do separate the two, but I think that's in order to, in on the one hand it's, it, it's in order to um, try and get your understanding across. Um, but on the other hand, the problem is that what you're communicating is that they are separate, but they're not. You know, your understanding might be that they're not, but the person you're talking to isn't going to understand the same thing, or may not. Mm -hmm. um, 
So it is difficult because we have to try and communicate the idea. Um, but, in, you know, just going straight off the bat and saying that they are not separate, it's just going to confuse the hell out of some people. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You can. Yeah. It's a big jump to get there from here, and knowledge is always stepping stones. You can't get more than two step stones away from what you already know. Mm. Um, but also, I think that's why we say, or I say again and again, um, witches hold paradox. That's that's what it is to be a witch, is to hold a paradox. And because that's the interim process, as you go from... Um, this mechanistic, materialistic worldview, um, you know, that is very concerned with this duality, is very concerned with separation, and, and you go through the process, because at first you're just like, okay, yeah, the witches say it's not separate, whatever, we're just going to keep that on the sidelines and go on with life, right? That's holding paradox at first. You really do believe this thing. But you know, everybody else that you want to be like says this thing. Mm. <laughs> and so you're just kind of like, <laughs> you know, trying to figure out, is one right? Is one wrong? Is it both? Mm. What the fuck? And you spend a long time in that process. And eventually you will get to the point where you have reconciled them. Mm. And I hate that word because reconciliation of a paradox ends the paradox. Yeah right? You've solved it. And that's not what happens. But you're no longer you're no longer stuck in the quandary of which one's right and which one's wrong because you've gotten past that duality too in other ways and held the paradox that multiple things can be true at the same time even in contradiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I mean that that that's just the way things go anyway. Oh. Yeah. yeah. I, I think you named this show pretty pretty good. Follow the white rabbit. <laughs> because we as, have wandered. As per usual, <laughs> we've gone down the rabbit hole. <laughs> yep. Yep. All right. So back to birth. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So birth. Uh, birth. Birth. Well, we've spoken about birth now. The soul comes in at certain at different times. Um, oh, what I was going to say earlier was that that, that whole uh, individualization, individu in, what? Indivi individuation. Individuation. In that yeah, I was going to say individualization. <laughs> um, you know, we that separation that happens at the first breath if we consider everything to be divine that soul's already there has always been there will always be there um it's all part of the same thing everything is connected etc 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 um so to say the soul comes in at a certain point is actually redundant yeah so that's it thanks very much everybody <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's talk about the other end of birth. There are rituals that go with birth because it's considered a dangerous time. Mm. There are lots and lots of protection rituals, both for mother and the newborn baby. 
And I'm sure a lot of these came about due to very high infant mortality and very high maternal mortality, which are things we're st still struggling with as a species. You know, um, humans, we're a lot better than we used to be, really, by, mm. by and large. But it's still a lot more than we want because, um, I mean, who wants to confront death at the time of birth, right? This is supposed to be a joyous time of increasing life. And often the beginning of um, a whole new stage of life for the parents, you know? I mean, if we're talking about life passages, um, birth is not just a life passage for the person being born. Mm. It's a life passage for everyone who has participated in making that happen. And that includes grandparents who change roles and stages in life when their own children have children. And that doesn't just have to be blood relatives, you know. Um, I went through a very um, big kind of perspective shift when my sister-in-law had kids. Mm. Because I'm much older than my siblings and... Um, my husband and I, we had kids pretty young in life, comparatively speaking, especially to his sister, who was only three years younger, but she had kids 10 years later in her life than we did. So that's a big span. My kids were teenagers by the time she started having babies, mm. you know, and I became a pibbling, you know, and, and suddenly this was this whole new role of relating to children um, that was similar. I, I've taught children's classes and, and I've been um, a scout leader and, and interacted in that, you know, I'm not your parent, but I'm an adult that cares about you kind of way. But now I suddenly got to be the, the fun, crazy pibbling who showed up with crosswords at weird times <laughs> and things like so that. <laughs> yeah. So birth is a life passage and, and has ripples for affecting the life stages and dynamics of everyone that's close to mm. whoever is being born. Obviously, just like everything else where we talk about impact, it, it's, you know, it's ripples, it's an onion. At the center is the person really going through the thing. And then there's layers and layers and layers of closeness until you get out here and those people don't even know what's going on because they're not close enough to it. But, um, I think the whole seeing it as a holistic change to the entire family system or um, unit of uh, collected souls, um, if we're going to talk from a metaphysical perspective, because families that live together tend to vibrate together, their life paths converge as they pursue similar goals and, of course, just straight up spend physical time around one another you know and so birth is going to affect that and we often focus our rituals at that most center point which makes absolute sense you know marriage celebrations are about the two people getting married births are about the person being born and the people giving birth and then out but I think it's important to take the time to realize that there is a a shift 
in what happens for everyone connected to that birth. And I see that, you know, if we're talking about it from the soul perspective, a lot of people will say, oh, we've added a person or we've added a soul. And I always kind of think of it more like mitosis. Our family soul has divided and reproduced. Mm. We didn't add, kind of, but we didn't add from outside. Yeah. It's a coming from within. And I don't think it's just the mother carrying the fetus whose soul divides and opens up because when souls get close to each other, they all kind of just into one thing, right? Mm. That's why we talk about marriage as a union. We bring these souls close together and they kind of clump and become entwined in one thing. There's still some individuation, but they're all, I don't know, clumpy, attractive, goopy. I don't know how to describe it. And so, yeah, when everybody comes together and this new soul emerges from the, the collection of souls, you know, that new soul bit, um, it's going to be influenced by the channels it took to get there. Mm. And so, oh, go ahead. I was going to say again, it's the, it's the idea of having two separate bodies and bringing them together. I mean, even if you look at the, the process right at the beginning, you've got sperm cells and you've got an egg. These are two separate bodies that are coming together in order to unite and form one body. Same with marriage, that's the way we view it, but it's still those, that idea of bringing two things. So that whole, whole idea of mitosis just makes more sense. Mm -hmm. Is this a continuation of the soul, just forming it into a, a, new, a new, different body? Mm. And I think it really gets back to the idea that there is a singular soul. Mm. Although I have a problem with the word singular, but we'll go with it for now. Um, <laughs> a singular divinity, a divineness that comes up in little pieces and i like using fingers because that's really how i feel it, it not separate things because it never actually gets disconnected mm. it's still absolutely connected all the way to the big thing mm. even though this is the part that comes through and does things in in physicality and we think, oh, this thumb is separate from this finger, is separate from this finger, is separate from this finger, because we can't see the hand, because that's behind the curtain of, of physical manifestation. Mm. Although I was going to talk about um, older rituals. Uh, I mean, there are... I think we we consider them to be barbaric nowadays, but they were not at the time. They were completely sane, actually, in a way. Um, but things like the... I remember reading about the Tibetans would actually dunk the child in the river, which was freezing. And if the child survived, it would go on to be able to live strongly. If it died, it wouldn't have been able to. Um, but, I mean, those were times when things were rough. And you know, we're not not pampered like we are nowadays. So, 
Mm-hmm. You know, in a, in a sense, it was kind of a mercy. I suppose we could put it that way. I think that's definitely uh, most likely how our ancestors viewed it. Because mm. there is this idea somehow that with uh, many of these rituals, like exposure and the dunking in the river and the waiting to name the child for seven or nine days and things like that, that somehow the parents who had given birth to this child were not attached, mm. you know, because infant mortality was high. And I don't think that's true. Mm. I, I think um, parents are loving parents, mm. you know, and it is a tragedy to lose a child. And I do think that our ancestors had more of that tragedy than we do, mm. generally speaking. Um, People still lose children. There is still infant mortality. We have not stamped it out, although I wish we could. But it's not where we're at. Uh, but yes, it w- it was definitely rougher times. And just living in a world where when you talk to, you know, the families in your village and in your, your town, everyone had a dead child. Mm. Made it a little different. But I don't think that made love or care less or made the people cruel or or indifferent but um when we have terrible tragedies when we have things that we cannot deal with and the death of a child i don't want to say it's something you can't explain and therefore you have to turn it over to something mystical but it's something that is tragic and very very difficult to deal with and so we turn to religion not necessarily spirituality, but religion, practices, um, assurances, things that will help us deal with these really intense, really terrible um, situations that humans have to go through. Mm. And um, these kinds of rituals, um, dunking the baby in water and that sort of thing, I don't think they were so much as we view them today of oh they wouldn't have made it anyways so let's let them die now you know but more of um, this helps ensure the baby's survival Mm. this you know helps them be strong this helps them grow up strong why because everyone we do it to lives Mm. Um, and is that confirmation bias maybe Mm. I don't know um, but it is a way to deal with the tragic loss that is all around us, you know, because if, if you grow up knowing that, you know, most of the, the children in your village, half of them died before they were three years old, when it's time for you to have a child, guess what you think about, mm. you know, um, so I, I I always try to look at these past rituals, especially these ones that get labeled as barbaric and cruel and think what what were these people dealing with and why why did they adapt this way? You know? I mean we can even see nowadays how people get um attached to their, their children before they've even known them. Um surrogate yeah. surrogate mothers, uh, adoptions at birth, um I mean, they don't even get to meet their children 
yet they they feel that connection. Um, so you know that that definitely wouldn't be the case of uh, you know they, they just they just don't feel that connection. We do all the time. Everybody does. Um, but I think you know, naming the child seven or nine days after the birth would be that that situation where you're not sure if the child is strong enough to survive in the world that you live in. So let's allow it time to fu- to see that process. You see if it actually does survive, and then we can mm-hmm. then we can say hi, how are you? Um, this is your name. Um, but I also um, there is a kind of protective mythos around um, the child not having a name because you can't have power over something that is, doesn't have a true name. Mm. And it is that protection that is extended uh, when the fetus is still in the womb. You know, there is massive protection at that time. The child is inside someone else's body, mm. you know? And so now the child is outside the body and fragile and, and crying <laughs> and delicate and, and, you know, bad things can happen. And, and staying in seclusion, um, not giving out the child's name, those sorts of things, those, those are also protective measures. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and like in the heathen traditions where the child's name is not announced for nine days, doesn't mean the kid doesn't have a name it means only the parents know the name and only the parents speak that name to the child and some traditions there is a name that only parents use for the child and nobody else uses it Mm. you know Um, but it is a kind of protective kind of thing where uh, everybody else not saying we don't trust them but you never know you just don't share those things publicly until things have had time to settle and like um within heathen belief those nine days it's that's a sacred passage of time you know that aligns to other sacred passages of time nine is the number of infinity and completion so this is a way to ensure they live a long life and that they're protected from that kind of manipulation magic that occurs when people speak ill of you and or Al Blink, and when there is actual malevolence, because um, you know that was flying around back then, just like it is now. That people get jealous and don't want so and so to succeed, or or whatever, you know. Plus all of the um, hierarchies dealing with um, who's next in line for what and that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, and I believe the naming was very much um, ancestral based. Um, so you would name your child the uh, same name as someone who's passed, uh, someone who was in the family, and usually considered that that soul of that person would then enter this new body. Um, and you know, now now we're back to that uh, separation of souls, individual things. Um, mm-hmm. But the easiest way to talk about it, I suppose. <laughs> Holding um, that paradox. Yep. Um, but it was was that case of the soul of the ancestor would actually come back, and therefore they would mm-hmm. name 
name the child the same name. Uh, sure. same, and, same, and same in the Tibetan tradition, um, you know, on the Chinese t t tradition as well, where they um, put toys out in front of the child and the child goes for, for a toy. And that's because the soul of the previous person has now re-entered the, the body. Mm -hmm. and and that takes time that doesn't happen before birth mm. in the cultures that um follow those practices um you have to you have to wait and see mm. who the child turns out to be you know um which ancestor uh may manifest through them and sometimes there's also traditions that don't necessarily uh, see it as the ancestor takes up residence in the new body kind of thing and the soul came back as a whole person but um, you need to protect the kid for a little while because it takes time for the ancestors the beloved dead to get the message that there is a new child born and they need to come and, and be protective and do the things that family does you yeah. know uh, I was, I was so Sorry, I was wondering when you were talking about um, the parents uh, call the child by a certain name for those nine days, but don't um, reveal the name to the public. I was actually wondering if that was also a case of kind of calling that ancestral spirit. So for those nine days, you are calling this child by a particular name, therefore you are calling the ancestral spirit into the body. Yeah. I some traditions could do that. Mm. What I'm talking about is is protection, um, protection, mm. and and honoring the sacred bond between parents and child. Mm. You know, that is um, it's a very very tight, unique bond that doesn't happen in other ways. Um, although uh, we, I think we have to talk about adoption here. Because the cultures that have rituals that deal with infant mortality almost always also have elaborate rituals for adoption. Um, because it was very, very common to adopt other kids, to adopt people as adults, to change families. Mm. And especially... Um, many blood ceremonies especially going under the turf and that sort of thing um, they're considered just as powerful of making the bond as being birthed they're you know it one is not lesser than the other one is not more potent than the other they are the same and um, many of the birth rituals are um, I don't know, mimicked in adoption are the same in adoption because it's the same process. Mm. So even in, you know, this child is born of my body, therefore it's clearly my child, I still need to go through the adoption. I still need to go through those rituals of of naming and, and claiming and, and joining and everything else because... Um, they've still been individuated they've still become separate from the body mm. and so they must be brought firmly into the family in that way yeah 
And with adoption, especially with adoption of adults, would that be kind of a, a birthing process into the family so they get renamed? They get a, a new new name? Often, yeah. The, the adoptions I've attended, um, usually what it is is that the family has already in practice adopted them, mm. you know, because you don't just do this on the spur of the moment or bad things happen. Um, and there's often some nickname or affectionate term that is regularly used for that person because they're becoming part of the family, you know. And then when it comes time to formally announce, you know, we've been through all the stuff and here we are in front of the public and we're publicly saying this person is now part of our family and we have claimed them. There's usually some naming convention that goes along with that. Sometimes it's the addition of a surname. Sometimes it's the public announcement of a new name that they will be called by. Mm. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. Sometimes that is, um, is still kept fairly secret. It's not necessarily publicly announced. It depends on the tradition and what's going on, that sort of thing. I'm thinking, you know, craft initiations are a rebirth and an adoption. Mm. You get adopted into your coven. You become part of that family. And um, the craft tradition I came up in, you were given a name. You didn't get a choice in it. Um, and that was part of that process, just like being born, you don't get to tell your parents on day two, I would like my name to be, you know, um, they name you. And uh, usually at second or, or third, you choose your name. But you get this name that you carry with you that your uh, magister, Damon Magister, gave to you. But there are other traditions um, uh, where people choose their own name. Mm. And it's not, it doesn't seem as family adopting as uh, the way I came up and the way uh, heathenry uh, often does it. So I think there's a lot of variance in that, mm, you know, how that works. It, whether it's a public name or a private name. Well, it is a case of many births, though. Um, we don't just have that one birth at the beginning of our life. We get birthed many times into different things and different families. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it, it's still part of a cycle. We, we here on this side of the life cycle really do think in linear time. Here's a birth. And here's my life, and then here's the death, and that's the end. Mm. But birth is a point on a cycle. Death is a point on a cycle. And so we're going to go through those experiences repeatedly in other ways than just physical. Mm. So we do end up with multiple births. We do end up with multiple deaths. We, you know, that's, I mean, that's one way I've seen... Um, initiation described is you need to die before you die otherwise you're afraid of dying mm. you know <laughs> if you can't if you can't do that basic thing how are you gonna do the magic thing although i died before i die and now then that made me terrified of dying <laughs> <laughs> yeah well the the dying fear is I think dying into nothingness, dissolution. That's yeah, the fear. That's the fear, yeah. 
But if you die before you die, then you know that dying is not dissolution. Because you've already done it before and you're still here. Yeah, but I, I went that way and came back that way again. <laughs> at the point of death, I'll go that way and then go that way. And I don't know what's beyond that point, you see. <laughs> or is there what a is difference? Terry Pratchett says, I cherish the unknown. It's the here and now that's scary. Mm, true. <laughs> because the unknown is all possibilities. Mm. Yeah. Not. Yeah. Although, and, although, sorry, I, I can't argue the point that at that point when I, when I did die, I think I came back. But maybe I did not. Maybe I did continue. <laughs> and this is actually that point beyond my death that I'm living now. Yep. Yep. Could be. <laughs> Could be. Mm. Oh. Oh. Makes death and birth a little more wobbly terms. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, we, we talk about birth and death, and as we say, I think we kind of punctuate these points um, but there's, there's not really any any point it's not a you came into the world and you left the world it's just a continuous process um, all you're doing is going on to different phases of your existence um, you know you, you get born into the world it's just a, a phase that you came from into and then you phase out into something different just a continuation of that Mm -hmm. existence yeah I think as humans we very much need to mark points on a cycle because mm, we have to make it linear well yeah we need to make it linear and if we don't mark particular points we lose track of the cycle mm. we get lost in the flow um, you know I think of uh back in the 1800s when colonizers were first encountering uh, peoples who hadn't been colonized and they would you know ask things like how old are you and people would just be like what mm. because they didn't mark time that way that was not a, a repeated point in a cycle that they valued you know questions like how many children do you have uh, you know, uh, that would be a marker of age as opposed to how many years have you marked off on the calendar. Mm. But didn't they and recognize again, a year cycle? Yes, recognize a year cycle, but not necessarily in an individual way. Mm. I have been through 67 years. They have been through 54 years, so on and so forth. And so the individual birthdays might not be the method of timekeeping. Mm. Or it might be a shorter method of timekeeping um, in that lunar months are much more important. Or lunar years are more important than solar years. Mm. Um, because the lunisolar structure marks time in, in multiple ways. And... Um, you know, uh, I think everybody's aware of the solar year and would keep the solar year until we get to extreme um, latitudes, including zero. 
we find less um, emphasis on the solar year closer to the equator mm. because seasons don't change and it doesn't matter that much. Mm. You know, it, it's, it, it is not um, necessary for survival to know when to plant the crops because you could do it year round. Mm. And so um, lunar markers take precedence there in those cultures. And uh, the same things happens at extreme northern and southern latitudes. Um, solar markers aren't nearly as important because they do not mark changing climate. Mm. Other things become more important. And like, you know, Egypt, um, the great massive empire that was Egypt that survived thousands of years, um, one of their, their markers were star heliacal risings star groups that would rise before the sun at certain times because that's what marked the flooding of the Nile and therefore the planting cycles and the production of food and and everything else so that has mm. bearing on it too yeah. I think I'm gonna work how many work out how many lunar cycles I've I've lived and then when next time somebody asks me how old I am I'm gonna say I am 800 and 50 whatever like a word. <laughs> well, but lunar cycles aren't just months either. We're not just talking yeah. new moon to new moon oh, yeah, necessarily. Sorry. Oh yeah. Because there's also the metonic cycle, the 18.7 years um, that it takes for the sun and the moon to meet in the same place sidereally against the backdrop of the fixed stars. Okay, then it gets and complicated. That, well, I mean, look at the Mayan calendar. That's the way the the Mayan calendar is structured. It's a sidereal calendar that is based on the the back, backdrop of the fixed stars and the movement of the sun, earth, and moon against those and how those cycles all line up and when they repeat. Mm. That's why it's so long, because they're tracking each unique iteration mm. before we get to a complete cycle. So there's lots and lots of different ways to keep time, although humans do tend to follow a solar year, a lunar month, and a solar day. Because mm. they're real obvious, except if you live in places where they're not. Mm -hmm. All right, I think we're starting to go off track again. Oh yeah, we've wandered far, far from birth. Well, not really. Far, far, still, far. Still relating to birthdays, so. Yeah, true. Mm. True, but yeah, yeah, we've gotten off on birthdays. Mm. We do, we do, we do have that annual celebration of our, the day of our birth to celebrate that. So, and we usually get together with family and friends to do that. So we bring everybody. Um, as you were saying, you know, at the birth, it's used nowadays. It's usually focused on the child and the the person who gave birth, not the entire unit of the family. So. I suppose birthdays are. What else was that? A fly or something. Just right on the camera. Bloody <laughs> ghosts! Bugger off! I'm trying to record here. <laughs> uh, always something. Always something. Always something. Yeah. So anyway, yes. Can't remember what I was talking about now. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Birth is a dangerous time for everyone involved. Um, and, I mean, 
obviously it's clearly a dangerous time medically. Mm. And I think, you know, we're at the point where we have so much medical advancement that for a lot of things, when we look back, we very quickly separate off our medical advancements. But um, I don't think our ancestors were just doing these things because they didn't understand medicine and therefore they were superstitious. There is a certain degree of, of time-tested things. Mm. Um, one that comes to mind associated with the birth is, uh, I believe it's a very, very old Slavic practice that was called baking a baby. And after the baby was born, it was wrapped in warm dough and put in a warm oven to rise. Mm. And then, you know, the baby would come out and everything else. Well, you know, people freaked out and, oh my God, they're eating babies and blah, 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 and, and craziness. But this was perhaps a very good way to warm the baby up in a very cold climate. Not in a hot oven with a fire burning in it. That's not what they were doing. Mm. But in a warm oven that would hold heat for quite some time. I mean, if you have a brick oven that's a source of heat in your house, even when the fire's out, he's going to hang out and be warm for a while. Mm. Now, wrapping the baby in dough, I'm not sure what that was about as opposed to a blanket, but I'm sure there was something that helped somehow. Otherwise, they wouldn't have kept doing it. If it was killing children, it wouldn't be a practice that survived for... Uh, not just a few generations, but many, many, many generations. Wouldn't an ingredient you in know? the dough be good for the skin of the baby or something like that? Something like that, or the moist air, mm. or, you know, lots of things. But also think about bread rises and has the magic of the yeast in it, and bread is a central theme of the idea of life, mm. because we literally watch it grow on the counter, you know? And, and and do these things that clearly indicate life and it sustains life. Grain is, is the backbone of food for a huge amount of humans, you know. And then all of these connections with the oven is the tomb, is the womb, and, and the bread is life and everything else, you know. That fits in there too. It's not just the materialist um practicality of this helps keeps babies alive which it must or why would they be doing it for hundreds of years mm. you know um just like dunking the babies in the river or um the practice of exposure and that sort of thing you know there's lots of these things that we don't necessarily understand but why would they keep doing it mm. if it wasn't helping in some way or at least wasn't harming and also had spiritual import yeah. you know yeah. Yeah. a lot of a lot of magical mis metaphysical symbolism there mm. and and i think everyone who is going through that life passage of birth you know because like like we said it affects lots of people um should be mindful of the protective rituals that we need. I've heard this fall season, uh, PSA is about don't kiss babies. RSV mm. and the flu is rampant here to the point that it's overloading emergency departments. And uh, medicine is unavailable for children over the counter in many places. And mm. so there's now a PSA about don't kiss babies. You know, uh, their immune systems are vulnerable, don't make them sick. 
that's a protective taboo. Mm. That's the same kind of protective taboo as don't tell them their name for nine days. Or uh, mom and baby need to remain in seclusion and, and stay warm. Mm. You know, um, there is the enclosure uh, that happens after birth. Uh, I can't remember if the one I'm thinking of is Korea or Japan. Sorry, I should know better. Uh, but, you know, the mom needs to stay warm. Uh, there's there are certain foods that they eat that are warming foods. No air conditioning is allowed. No going outside is allowed. Um, it, you know, it is an enclosure and it is a protective kind of enclosure. And, of course, there are now modern studies coming out about how these practices really do help. You yeah. know, they, they help mom avoid postpartum depression. They help avoid these particular diseases, so on and so forth. Uh, but these practices developed and continued long before such research came out to talk about the medical side of things because there's other stuff going on too, not just practical trial and error, but our spiritual understanding and our metaphysical understanding arises from our experience of the world. And therefore there is an underlying, um, what do I want to say? An underlying, underlying um, experimental basis to our spiritual understanding. It's not experimental on an individual level, because it doesn't happen in our lifetime. It happens across many lifetimes. And so we take these traditions that our ancestors did, we practice them, we try them out, we experiment with them, and, and we keep what is time-tested. Mm. And it's not perfect because human experience, we're bad witnesses. Um, we tend to, especially in modern times, prioritize our individual experiences over the collective because it's the one we experienced, mm. you know? Um, it's a thing we're familiar with and we have a really hard time conceptualizing over the things we didn't experience. It's just the way brains work. But through those years and years of that, we do develop um, explanations and understandings of what's happening even if we don't necessarily have the organic chemistry to explain it or the physics to explain it and uh, in modern times a lot of those things are relegated to that superstition you know arthur mm -hmm. clark's law um, what any uh, advanced technology is magic but that means that moves as we understand more and more and more technology this potential realm of magic shrinks right? Because we're moving the bar that way. And I don't think just because we don't understand it, it's magic mm. or spiritual. We can understand it and also understand that there is a, a spiritual inner truth. I almost said component, but that makes it seem like a separate thing yeah, I was say because element. they're the same. Mm. Yeah, element. They're the same thing, just like um, you know, all the souls are the same thing. Mm. Life is life, no matter what expression it is in. You know, so I don't know. I, and I, this comes up in this birth discussion because we as humans are doing everything we possibly can to prevent maternal and infant death. Mm. Really, it, I don't think there's a culture of humans that have ever been that have not had that as a goal. Yeah. because we want 
we want to survive. We want to love our children. We want them to be born happy and healthy, and we want them to go on and survive mm. as, as a species, not necessarily individuals here, because there are plenty of people that don't want to have kids. Mm. But as a species, you know, we're doing this. So, um, and I think because we all share that common goal, we're all going to be driving towards um, making that better in any way we can, which includes medicine and organic chemistry and an understanding of germ theory and everything else and spiritual protection and metaphysical protection and so on and so forth. And some people may say, well, that's just, you know, psychological to ease stress and ease the mind and okay, cool. Stress kills. <laughs> no, not, <laughs> you know? in, not in our, our world and our understanding. Um, yeah. Yeah. There are things out there beyond our, our comprehension that can harm. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Alright, is there anything of dire importance you want to add? Shall we finish today? I don't think so. I, we haven't really gotten into lots of the the birthing rituals and the actual practices, but so many. Mm. There's so many. And, you know, even within um, different cultures, with any one culture, there's tons and tons of practices. Mm. Because this is an important thing. Yeah. A super important thing. So there's going to be lots of rituals and, and little taboos, little practices, um, things like, you know, babies should be wrapped in white or, um, you know, they should see, they should have skin to skin contact immediately or they should see their father first or tons of stuff like that. Um, that may be just little cultural things uh, that we don't necessarily think of as birthing practices but they are we would group that under there if we were you know doing anthropology for everyone yeah but they, i mean some of those would would be very important even nowadays i mean skin 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 to skin contact with the mother we've shown and proven that that's a very important aspect right uh, for the mother and the baby yeah. yeah but lots of stuff like that you know i mean that skin-to-skin -skin contact, there is um, a tradition, here I am drawing a blank on the culture again, I think it's Moroccan, Northern African, um, up near the coast of Northern Africa, uh, because it's talked about in Greek writing, so the Greeks were encountering these people. Um, but if the, the mother needed to be naked when the baby was born, um, and the reason was given that knots and bindings around her would bind up the birth and bind up the child's life. But also, the minute the baby was born, before the cord was cut, before the afterbirth, everything, the baby was supposed to be put back on the mother's belly because you just took it out of there and you need to let them know that this is where they came from and they're safe, that they didn't just get ejected into a new world and the previous world was gone. It was seen as a way of connecting them to that um, previous experience 
So we have two things that were separate beliefs, no knots, no woven fabrics, no bindings on the mother, because that would bind up the birth process. Mm. And baby needs to immediately see where they came from. Immediately. Like, <laughs> no seconds passed, mm. right? But that's just skin-to-skin -skin contact, if we look at it from a medical context. Yeah. Yeah. As you said, there's a lot. Maybe we can do another show on birth. All right. So let's bring today to an end. Um, if you do want to join us on the Wildwood Temple, you can t continue these discussions and ask any other questions you want to, really. Um, if you would like to support us, there is a donation uh, tab or page on the website, intothewildwood.com. Uh, you can go and give us a, a once-off or a, a monthly donation there. Uh, we'd obviously appreciate that. And uh, yeah, go check out the links, go check the website, the Discord server and everything else. And we'll be back next week and it is the astrological forecast next weekend, not next week. Um, so we'll, Kai will have a look into the month of March. Yep. Tell yep. us what to expect. Gotta take notes. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so we see you next week. Have a good one. Cheerio. Thank you for joining us in the Wildwood. Meet us again next week for another episode. And don't forget to check out our website at intothewildwood.com. That's Wildwood with a Y. And if you would like to support us, you can leave a donation on the website.